The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andy Greenwald. Bienvenue, mes amis. It's seasons three and four of the Bureau. We've been promising this. I'm sorry we were a little bit late on it, but we're going to get right into it. So Andy and I did seasons one and two of the Bureau. Uh, You can find that from a couple of weeks back. We're going to do three and four today. And then the final episode of this sort of bonus run of pods that we're doing, we'll cover the fifth and final season of the Bureau and hopefully have a very special guest that we're we're efforting to book. But Andy, here we are. And I want to start here. Does any show that you can think of Mm. get progressively better over the course of its seasons the way the Bureau does? Because I think you could make the argument that, you know, and we haven't watched five, so that's, I think, worth noting, is that Andy and I have, have turned the faucet off because we're trying to discuss these things as if we're stepping through it in real time. So we've watched three and four, but we have not watched five yet as we record right. this. I kind of can't believe the forward momentum of this show. It reminds me basically of The Wire, which I think you know many people argue peaked with four. I think everybody has their favorite seasons, but I would definitely say three and four mm-hmm. are these towering achievements. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that like The Wire, and maybe only like The Wire, the Bureau expands season to season. It grows. It gets deeper. Your relationship, not only to these characters, but to additional characters, the scope of the world, the stakes of the emotional lives and the geopolitical lives expands and continues to get bigger and better. And it is totally rewarding in a way that only ongoing series can be. I do think this show is unique in my experience, though, in that it is doing something we have seen a lot of in American television over the last few years, which is leaving it all out on the floor every season. So each season ends with what could be, I mean, and we'll get to cliffhangers later in this podcast, with a definitive statement about at least where we've been so far. And, you know, I I think that there's a common refrain in writer's rooms in this country, which is, you know, and and generally a successful one, which is leave it all on the floor. Don't worry about tomorrow's problems. You might not be lucky enough to have a chance to solve them and we'll deal with it later. So let's just like, You've talked about this a lot. Like when we talk about like, uh, and it's interesting because I just had a conversation with For All Mankind's co-creator, Ron Moore, who also mm-hmm. did Battlestar. And I asked him, I was like, you know, I think that there is a 
trend in contemporary TV to just burn all the plot mm-hmm. you have on the whiteboard as soon as possible because you don't know if you're coming back for that third season or yeah. you don't know if it's maybe it's a limited series or whatever it is. And that that has now become kind of like de rigueur in, in writer's rooms. That's a French phrase, by the way. So yes. that was well chosen. Yeah, I, um, I thought I thought it was an East Town phrase. De rigueur. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works both ways. That's part of the, the transatlantic um, uh, amistad, if you will. So <laughs> I think, though, what's particularly unique about Le Bureau, at least through our experience, which is through season four and, you know, TBD, how it works out in season five. Every moment that they, it seems like they've pushed Melitru, Paul, Guillaume, whatever you want to call him, past the point of no return, there's another place to go. And not just another place to go for the extremity of the situation. And there's a lot of extremity in the seasons we're talking about. It feels somehow logical for the journey that began with the first episode. And that is no small feat. I wouldn't consider this show to be something that is plotted like Breaking Bad, which is, you know, starting point and an ending point 20,000 leagues below the moral sea. In some ways, it's momentum and its sheer creative electricity reminds me a little bit of Parks and Recreation, which totally different show. But every season, Mike Schur and his team were like, well, this is probably it. So let's Mm -hmm. just do it. And then they would have to pick up the pieces. The other comparison to be made in American television potentially is Mad Men, which didn't, of course, have the geopolitical stakes that that this show did. But each season seemed to push Don Draper further and further. But at a certain point, and I would argue that later mid-seasons were better than the early seasons of that show as well. But at a certain point, it was diminishing returns. And no spoilers for Mad Men, but I think longtime fans of that show recognize there's a moment in the end of the penultimate season when you pretty much know, and I think he confirmed in interviews, the creator, Matthew Weiner, was like, that was my end of the series. Yeah. So I guess I'll just, you know, erase the whiteboard and start again in the last season. There's only so many places you could push Don Draper before it started to feel redundant. He could only start drinking and stop drinking so many times. This show, go, go, go. I can't believe we're still going. And, and I the, love it. The question is, is would Mad Men have been better if Don Draper had wound up being imprisoned by ISIS? I think there is almost no question, but it's... it's <laughs> It's hard to, you know, it's a hypothetical. It's like when you know, would you play Pistol Pete versus Kyrie? Like who would win in one on one? You can't know. But yeah. if you put both of them in a box, and I'm going to leave this analogy aside. Um, <laughs> Pistol Pete was a good, it's, good get though for you. Thank you. It's early here, but I can still come up with them. Um, I think that we should say I agree with you completely, and it's one of the things that you know our enjoyment on the show is crackling on so many different levels. One of which is it just keeps going and it keeps getting better. And it's so rewarding. I would say that I'm glad, I don't know if we had known this when we decided to divide this uh, podcast this way, but season three is a very dramatic break from the show that we were watching from the first two seasons. Yes, Obviously, very much so. it is in the broad strokes, it is, it is very much the same show. But one of the things we lauded about the first season or the first two seasons, particularly the first, was its uh, quiet almost cosmopolitan restraint. There's very little violence. Um, no, very few guns are drawn, except maybe in the first season at the end. There's very um, few, there's very little C-Clo running. There's very little like action. Everything is sort of these, these little rooms. Yeah. Every war feels like a cold war, even if that's not the case, because it's being decided by often men, some women in rooms. And you know, it's subverting our expectations, particularly, I think, our American expectations about how everything is going to end in a fireworks display, uh, metaphorically speaking, and the good guys are going to prevail. Season three immediately lets us know something is different. And and before we get into it, I do want to say, 
a shout out to my dear friend, Allison, uh, who, like many of my friends, you included, were getting these messages being like, let's watch the show. Like this show is great. A, f- a few weeks or months ago, you know, like the Bureau is where it's at. Phenomenal show, raving about it. All the reasons that we've raved about on the podcast. One morning I got a text a couple of weeks ago saying, uh, gave it a try. Don't think it's for me. Can't handle what they did to the dog. Sorry. And I was like, the dog? <laughs> That's wow. And, and it had been a while since I had watched the pilot. So she started in season three. She started in season three. Oh, and I don't man. know if there's any going back from that because I'm being, I'm like, it's this urbane, stylish, almost, you know, noir, sexy French international thriller. And she opens with a man she's never met before being savagely tortured, locked in a box with a severed dog's head. And frankly, I don't blame her. That would be a tough, tough landing and tough adjustment. That said, it's pretty jarring, even if you did start the show properly, right? Andy, I think it's probably worth mentioning just that uh, if folks want to watch The Bureau, The Bureau is a Sundance Now original series, and it's available to stream on Sundance Now. And it's also available through the streaming bundle, AMC+. So we had some questions about, hey... You guys seem to like this show quite a bit that you're doing bonus episodes about it. How do I watch it? Um, yeah, season three is a different animal. Uh, an RIP to the animals that we lose throughout season three. But season three is a much more uh, gnarly experience. And I think that in a lot of ways, this show is a show without, not necessarily a hero, because I think there are several heroes throughout and several anti-heroes, but it's a show that um, is essentially grappling with the absence of its main character. So... Mm-hmm. You know, in it starts with Paul. He's in Syria with Nadia. He's and he's sort of leaving her. So there's that absence there. Then he comes back and he's pretty quickly thrown into a lot of office politics in the first two seasons. But essentially, after running these two agents in the field with Marina and, and Raymond, goes back into the field to sort of half atone for what happened to Raymond, but also to make sure that these French national. ISIS members don't then come back into France to uh, execute any plans. And there is something very almost spiritual about Paul's journey throughout these yes. four seasons that we're talking about, the kind of um, you know flagellation that he puts himself through, the kinds of uh, sort of martyrdom that he puts himself through. Martyrdom is obviously also like something that concerns the his his opposites in a lot of ways, like when he is fighting against the Islamic mm-hmm. State. So it's a really interesting process but i have to say the bureau is also unique for me breaking battle to millie is a walter show and for as much as i love the characters in mad men around don draper i'm ultimately probably more concerned with how don draper or dick whitman goes from dick whitman to don draper and then into this sort of beatific cross-legged pose in big sur at the end of the series sorry for spoiling mad men if you haven't watched it but you're listening to a bureau podcast um for (laughs) What? Like, so they deserve it. <laughs> How dare you like this French show? Yeah, but it would be weird if you would. I do think it would be weird. Watch American shows first, says Chris Ryan. <laughs> That's right. I get it. Um, but when you get towards, when you watch the Bureau, you're essentially watching a group of people who should be supporting characters grappling with the absence of the main character. And in that process, six people become the main character of the show. I would hear arguments that Henri is the main character of the Bureau. Mm-hmm. I would hear arguments that Marie-Jean is the main character of the Bureau. There is an argument that Raymond is actually the most traditional main character of the Bureau. Um, and that, is nothing, that, that says nothing about some of the tertiary characters who I am honestly in love with, like, like Ezrin. 
Raymond is is the the president and prime minister of the French group, the Fraternité des Pipelayers uh, Internationale, because he is the most irresistible, uh, uh, you know, uh, lover that the country's ever produced. I, I, I really like the point you're making. It speaks to the brilliance of having a deep bench and caring about it. I mean, there's a case to be made that Mag is the main character of the show. Not really, but I would make it because I love him. And that's the way I feel about a lot of the supporting characters. I think it's interesting, two things before you get fully into the, the weeds of season three. I started by saying I wouldn't really compare the show to Mad Men. We've done it twice. And then you talked about how the main character, and I don't even know without realizing it, the main character of both shows has multiple identities mm-hmm. and is stuck between them. So that that that's probably worth noting. I did, you know, we get letters. Sometimes we get texts. Sometimes we get emails from these podcasts that we do. And it will gratify him far too much that I'm even mentioning this, but I think it's worth doing. Uh, one of our listeners is a, a longtime film producer who I'm working with on something. And he is it felt Jer- very strongly. Jerry Bruckheimer? Uh, Scott Rudin. Why? Have you heard anything? <laughs> he has... He loves the show. He is also not American by birth, though lives oh. here, and uh, feels very culturally connected to France. And what he felt we were missing, as the stumbling Americans that we proudly are, was a very French concept that he feels is baked into Guillaume, baked into the series. And then it helps to understand it helps understand the supporting characters and how they behave, I think, particularly over these two seasons. And the concept is amour fou, crazy love. Okay. People might remember that from the uh, episode title of A Sopranos, uh, a very great episode of The Sopranos. But the idea is like a a love that is so encompassing and obsessive that it makes you it makes you lose all sense. And my friend's point was that in France, culturally, collectively, as the national character, this is understood as something that happens, and it's something that happens and is understood that it will supersede any other bonds in your life, even up to the point of your bonds to your country. Mm -hmm. And thinking about Guillaume, Paul, Malatru through that lens not only helps understand, you know, the fiery passion that causes him to do these insane things despite his completely rigid exterior, but also understanding the very fascinating and psychologically complex relationship that everyone back at HQ has about him, right? In which they are furious at him and they desperately need but they, him. And they just can't quit him, yeah. They can't quit. They're angry, but they respect him so goddamn much, you know? Yeah. It's not as if, I think an American version of the show, there's a cowboy quality to Guillaume that we would recognize, right? That he's just going to do it his way because his way is the best way and it trumps everything else. The lingering respect that everyone has for him for being willing to go to these extremes. And as we've alluded in season three, the extremes are quite extreme. All ultimately for a matter of the heart is worth holding on to and remembering as we discuss the show, especially as we get further and further away. And in season four, we get almost entirely away from the Paul Nadia love story that started it at all. Yeah, I, that's a really interesting thing. I think part of one of the reasons why maybe I missed that aside from just straight up not knowing, you know, much about like maybe the French character, the French national character, is because Matthew Kasovitz gives such a tightly controlled performance. Mm-hmm. I think that you can see in, say, Marina or Marie-Jean or even Raymond, a little bit more of that like emotion, a little bit more of the the fire that kind of like is inside of their soul. And maybe even those like sort of performative ticks that they might have would suggest that like, oh, I could see this person maybe going against their better nature or going against like um, everything logical to do X, Y, or Z thing, 
with Paul, the ironic thing is that like this is the guy who seems most blank. You know, he the, maybe the reason why he's so good at what he does is because he is able to control his emotions. And you remember that scene with, um, I believe, with Celine, with the the woman who works on the Syria desk, mm-hmm. where he is just like you fucked up. Like you showed me your emotion when you, when I, when I sort of said something a little bit wild to you. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, a really noteworthy thing because one of the reasons why I sometimes, I think maybe I, I miss that connection is the ambiguity in the beginning of the series as to what his sort of relationship to Nadia is and to the extent to which he's using her. Yeah. I think that it's, it's, it's just worth considering. And in particularly you can see it this in season three with the great Henri Duflo for such a tightly wound series for such a tightly wound profession for such a tightly wound office literally the bureau that the show is set yeah. in yeah passion matters and that's a very and, and i think it's in a different way than we would consider it it's not like the disruptor innovator culture that exists in silicon valley there's this almost religious sense of believing in something and giving yourself to it it's almost it's 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 almost ecstatic and i see i think in this season I love that you made the comparison to um, Dish, Isis, uh, in how its followers behave. I don't think it's a heavy-handed comparison. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think Roshan, Eric Roshan, the show's creator, is putting his thumb on the scale saying these things are equal. Yeah. But there is a level of, I think you could use the word fanaticism to the way Henri behaves this season, which is so above and beyond what is expected of him, which is so above and beyond what is appropriate for him. Uh, not just for his age and rank and standing and importance to the office, but as we repeatedly see, perhaps the most French thing about the show, side note, he has an extremely young wife and a family. And yet his obligation to his own kind of amour fou for Guillaume is his undoing, uh, even if it does lead to greater intelligence gets. And we probably should on these podcasts have a little bit of a tally sheet because uh, as your wife has said to me many times, have they actually learned anything about the world on the show? True. Like, are, they, are I, there any wins? I, I just, and I think there are. I really do think, like, the DGSE might be the Minnesota Twins of the, of the Global Intelligence League. Like, just kind of like, hey, you know what? They got some good arms coming out of the pen this year. You never know. And then what do you know? They're 41 and 45. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant in the sense, like, very, like, hot off the presses. Like, they're the team that will throw behind the... Yeah hot young player just because they respect the rules of the game so much. You, you know, I'm glad you said rules of the game because that's the last thing. I, I know we haven't really gotten into season three per se, but we're not going to do episodic breakdowns. We're kind of more talking thematically here. Whenever anybody asks me, and it doesn't happen as often as I would like, like what my attract- attraction is to sort of espionage literature or, or TV or movies, one of the things I think Bureau does and better maybe than anybody other than Le Carre is document a world that is essentially off the books, right? Mm -hmm. None of what these people are doing is supposed to ever show up in the newspapers. It's not supposed to get medals of honor. It's not going to have press conferences. It's not going to, if they're doing their job right, nobody knows about it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the rules of engagement, a lot of the sort of articles of their faith are essentially collectively agreed upon, but not necessarily documented. You know, even if there is somewhere like a constitution of spies, I don't know if that's the case. But you're basically asking people to abide by a code that Mm -hmm. is not written in stone and has really, in a lot of cases, no ramifications if you don't abide by it. You know, I mean, you can get away with quite literally murder in this business. And 
that's what's so fascinating about what happens over the course of seasons three and four is because you find out how fungible and malleable these rules of the game are. And the people who want to kind of stick to a certain reading of them may think that they are being traditionalists or originalists about like, this is how this is supposed to go. If you are a citizen of France, you're supposed to defend France and do this and that. And obviously, uh, JJA, our boy, is going to figure largely in this in season four because he is almost an absolutist in a certain concept of intelligence work. But really, Paul is 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 an act of writing his own sort of moral compass, creating that at any given episode of this show. And I think that that's, uh, we won't skip ahead yet to season four, but that's also uh, Mary Jean's arc as well, which is trying to d- define her own relationship to old, old codified ways of being when she is not herself old, old or codified. I, I remember reading about like reading the like novels of Yukio Mishima, the Japanese novelist and, and about his very insane uh, end of life, which people should Google. It's pretty wild, but also like samurai culture in general and being like, okay, so this is basically a way of life where if something went wrong or it didn't work out, then you would take out your knife and you would disembowel yourself. And everybody was like, okay, well, we've reached that point. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that as a kid and being like, that's the most horrific thing I can imagine. But also, how arbitrary is this? You've agreed to do this, so you're just going to do it. And part of me at the time was like, well, that type of thinking doesn't exist anymore, thank goodness. Then you watch how it works in the DGSA. Mm-hmm. And it does work like that. You get the tap on the shoulder, except it's not a tap on the shoulder. It's something written on a piece of paper. And the piece of paper is handed to you. And if your name is on that piece of paper, sharpen your knife. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. You're done. You, the, and you the have politics to, of that is, yeah. Yet it feels, um, I think the idea behind it is that it is unfeeling, right? It is, it is appropriate. It is correct. Everything is clean and by the book. But of course it's not. It's, there's, there's a raging emotion underneath that. There, and, and we see that with Matthew Almerich's incredible performance that begins in season four. But all of this is human. It's not intelligence, it's human before it's human intelligence. And, and, and that's where things go sideways. And maybe that's a way to, to pivot then into season three, where we are now fully out of, in terms of where we are with Guillaume and Paul, we are fully out of the office. It is now physical yeah, in such a horrifying way. I mean, this was, I can only imagine what it was like for my friend Allison, but for people who have watched the show two seasons, getting into season three, the only word for how it begins is gnarly. Yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't know what it would do when it got there, and it did everything. If you ever were like, I wonder what it would be like to be kidnapped by ISIS. I mean, this show goes through through it pretty much step by step, and it includes being uh, buried alive and being tortured and witnessing horrific violence. And you know, one of the sort of most nerve wracking elements of Paul's imprisonment of Guillaume's imprisonment by ISIS is it is totally unclear. And I mean, like, I legitimately suspenseful as to whether or not anyone can do anything about it or anyone cares. Because mm-hmm. for the DGSE, coming into this, knowing that he has betrayed them to the CIA, although for that that crazy love that you're talking about, there is part of them that are like, if this guy just vanishes, as long as it never goes public, maybe that's good for us. And the Americans obviously agree because the Americans are like, you guys want us to bomb this? Because... We totally got drones. We got you guys want us to just make the we can make this problem go away, you know. And then finally, as the season goes on, (laughs) the Americans are the guy who's always offering to pick you up from the airport to the point where it's weird. Like that's not even convenient for you. You're just going to be by the airport, but 
Yeah, it creates like, more hey, questions. Do you guys have? A, oh, do you want us? To, do you want us to drop bombs on that? Because we got we got that. Um, yeah. So basically, Paul goes through this incredibly traumatic experience with ISIS, and it really is only the beginning of his problems. But his imprisonment kind of signals a turning point, an inflection point for the entire series. Because what happens is it winds up kind of turning the page. Both uh, some characters that we love leave us. We also have some characters that we love turn into different people, which I think is one of my favorite things about this show is that you really do see people change in an organic way, perhaps no more so uh, Marie-Jean, who I think begins her path to sort of finding out who she needs to become to become her version of Henri Duflo. It's mostly expressed through haircuts, which yes. changed dramatically over these two seasons. But no, I agree with that. I, I, I would also do a shout out to Kasovitz, who, um, I mean, I, I wonder if Rashad pitched this to him, that like you're going to be doing this one thing in suits, and then you're going to be uh, bearded and shirtless and gnarly, like just power chugging olive oil in the desert for a year, completely separate from the rest of your cast. And I imagine Kasovitz, like any actor, is just like, may we, like, let's go, you know, <laughs> like on y va. It's pretty cool. I, I should also say that it is a fool's errand to ever watch a genre television drama for actual edification purposes about the geopolitical state of Earth. That said, I was totally blown back on my heels by the world that is presented beginning in season three and very much continuing in season four. Part of this, you know, without question, is my own ignorance. I do not read Foreign Affairs magazine. I read one out of every eight 30-page New Yorker story from the Middle East. Uh, I'm not fully familiar with what has happened because of the destabilization of Iraq and Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Even with that ignorance, though, I think the degree to which Rashant and his collaborators present us with a boots on the ground, not chaos so much as churning sea of instability and insurrection and violence is really breathtaking and really fascinating. And perhaps more than anything else, the thing that it accomplishes that I find really affecting is the understanding, and maybe this is reminiscent of me reading a samurai story and being like, well, that'll never happen. And then finding out the samurai <laughs> story was set like two buildings over, <laughs> that because of the nature of these characters and their work, it is very possible for them to be having an omelet with Lemuel one day in a Par Parisian bistro and then be absolutely unmoored in Islamic State-controlled Syria mm -hmm. a day or two later. This isn't far away. No, I think uh, that, that, that is something that when you watch this from an American perspective, better for worse, we still have like a degree of like isolation to our mm -hmm. nation because it's just so huge and it's so far away. And we've got two oceans and it's just, you know, you obviously like modern travel has changed a lot of things, but there is a feeling that that stuff is happening over there. It's know? over there. That was always the rationale behind all of the misguided wars that we launched in the last decade, right? It's better over there than over here. When you're in Europe, when you're in Turkey, when you're trying yeah, to hold it together and, in Syria, but that, but it's even, not over there. But even the way you've just said that, in what order you've said that, it's like, think about Istanbul and Istanbul being this city that is traditionally the gateway from one culture to another and from one sort of part of the world to another. Of course, it's like, 
you go into Istanbul and you know, when you're in Istanbul, you're not that far from Syria and you're not that far from Iraq and you're not that far from, you know, and you just realize that these things are connected. These places are connected. These places are connected by people and these places are connected by politics. And that's what this show does in these two seasons that I think is deeply fascinating. And then, of course, the way it begins to set up how these smaller and broken in a lot of ways countries broken by superpowers countries in the in the middle east and 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 beyond are pawns in a game between these superpowers still and that that sort of as russia sort of slowly emerges as a quote unquote character in this show i think one of the things that's so wonderful about watching these two seasons together is that you can see the direct line from paul relying on the help of this fsb agent who's working out of a of an ISIS camp to Paul's arrival and embedding in Moscow with the FSB and with one of my favorite characters in season four, Karlov. Let's just talk a little bit about what Paul goes through in yeah. this camp because he meets this FSB agent. So we don't we can't either find or remember his actual name. I, I thought you should know that maybe this dates me, but in my mind, I refer to him as Zangief after the Russian fighter in Street Fighter 2. <laughs> that's good. Because because he definitely uh, has similar body proportions. So that that that's who he is to me. But he meets him while he's being choked out by him, basically. Yeah, and I think that... A meet I, cute. I, we don't necessarily need to go blow by blow through what happens. I think I would just say that as you kind of get to know this guy and you see him go and he goes into to the doctor's office, he goes to that surgeon... He, uh, he gets he gets shot or shoots himself basically in order to have a check in to make contact with his handler. That's when you start to like you're just like nobody talk. This guy's throwing a no hitter. You know what I mean? Like when you find somebody who is I you, you the first glance you're like oh this is just like the third guy in the background of a bunch of mm-hmm. of ISIS fighters, and then you get three to five episodes of equity with this guy to learn about like what he's doing, what he's going to do for Paul, why he's doing it. And then that character's ending. I, that is to me where this show sort of like separates from the pack. Yeah. There's a deep rejection of sentimentality on the show that I think in the wrong hands could be fatal. Anyone who listens to our main podcast feed, and by the way, it'd be so weird if you just stumbled across the second episode of a adjunct uh, podcast we're doing, uh, but everybody knows that you know I like I like a little comedy in my drama. That's just that's just who I am. Like the Colonel in the Boogie Night, simple tastes. There's not a ton of comedy here, but there's also not a ton of sentimentality. And what you're speaking to, Chris, is in a way, the audience falls in love with this guy, this gigantic bear of a of a undercover Russian in an ISIS camp, and because we like him and we see his performance. Everything about, well, not everything about him. He's a tough guy. But we like him and we also see him as a way for our beloved uh, Paul Guillaume to be saved. We want them to get along. I'm like, oh, here's an opportunity for a little buddy comedy. How do we find ourselves here? This is not that show. This is not that world. Right. And Paul, at times, is an asshole to him. He just is. Because yeah. his mission, so much as he still believes he has one, and maybe that's one of the reasons he's able to stay alive is because he compartmentalizes that way, is to maximize this guy's leverage and access to get himself out, which even if it means putting the squeeze on him, even if it means blowing his cover, even if it means ultimately, you know, setting off a chain of events that leads to this guy um, widowing his 
wife and family, as we find out in season four in Russia. That episode, uh, you know, we're, obviously we're jumping around a little bit, but when they finally do leave the camp mm-hmm. and uh, go on this long walk and this drive, and and look, I hope I hope it's not one of the weeks when Paul gets randomly drug tested. You know what I mean? <laughs> because he's juicing a little bit. He's juicing a little bit. I very curious. What do you what think the, he shoots him up with? I'm so I'm so curious. A little jealous, uh, especially. I mean, you know, when you got those two three podcast days, Chris. Yeah. It's amazing, though, like the level of like physical degradation that would happen from being kept in a box for six months. And then you get this, you know, the the liquid vial of the boats in Miami Vice. Yes. Basically injected yeah. into you. Here's this thing that and, will, even though you've been imprisoned for months, will help you walk across the desert. It does seem, though, and, and, and we, th- this is going to come up throughout our conversation, the side effect of this wonder drug seems to be the same side effect that really um, unsettles Marina, which is a sore tum-tum. My tummy, yeah. Guillaume is just like walking across the desert, no prop. But a little bit of a sour tummy. Yeah. He's like, please don't give me that drug again. <laughs> Why are you making Guillaume talk like Marina? <laughs> it, <there's, laughs> sorry, there, we, we should get to that. Power ranking, speaking in English power rankings for these two seasons... Kasovitz rocketing to the top spot. Uh-huh. Great job. You know, like all the great players, worked in the offseason on the flaw in his game and perfected it. Marina, we're going to have to... You got some notes? We're going to have to stay late after practice. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about Marina because I think that she's exemplary of the question that, that my wife was asking and that I, I sometimes ask, which is, are we sure they're good? Are we sure that they're good at like intelligence gathering? Mm -hmm. And obviously Marina participates, you know, she risks a lot to install this computer virus engineered by the Mossad in uh, uh, an Azerbaijani computer, which will then impact Iran's nuclear program in a roundabout way. Um, So that's, that goes into the the pro. Good job. Good job by you, Marina. Uh, She does like, I, I do feel like, she could get ambushed by a pot of coffee, though. Like, she does really walk into it a couple of times throughout this mm-hmm. series. And I guess the thing is, like, obviously her PTSD is a is a, is a storyline in season three. But I, I do think that most people would just kind of take stock of what we've had in Marina go through and just be like, just take a couple plays off. You know what I mean? Like, maybe do some desk work. Maybe check out Seismology since you've got a yeah. background in that. Like, maybe it's not time to go to Azerbaijan as a double agent for a guy who is pretending to be a French agent, but is in fact an Israeli agent. I mean, that is an interesting thing to note and something that I I do think in the short-term uh, win-loss column for the show, I don't think it fully successfully articulates. There's a moment early in the third season, well, the first few episodes in the third season, when, as you said, Marina is struggling. <laughs> and what made sense to her, and not in her usual um, tum-tum sense, but like she's having panic attacks and uh, is clearly not over the harrowing precarity of her circumstance in Iran. Yes. And Duflo, like all great high school coaches, is just like, you know, rub a towel on it and get back out there. Like yeah, you're fine. I, be- yeah. I, I believe in you. And the potential disconnect between what she's legitimately feeling and what he believes in her is one of those storylines that ultimately the show doesn't have 
enough time for because it needs her back in the field and it needs to tragically push Duflo onto his final journey as well. So that's a little bit of a bummer. That said, there are moments, broad strokes, the Mossad aspect of this is one of my favorite storylines in the show. It's so clever. It's mm-hmm. so preposterous. It's so, this is a writer's room term, it's like a hat on a hat. Like she's being she's being recruited twice. And the fun of it, the sheer like, I, that she actually picks up on too, that she's getting to, to sort of become now a double agent or I guess a triple agent at this point is really fun and clever and interesting. Um, and I'm really glad that, I'm really glad that we get there. I also love that relationship between her and I think his name is Oren. They're, they're sort of like the denouement of their, of their entanglement when he figures out something's up with her by the specific way she's laid out items on her bureau. Uh, oh my God. In the, the hotel room where she's essentially like puts everything sort of equidistant from each other so that she can tell if anything has been uh, touched which is a long way of being the, almost the same thing that James Bond does in an early Bond movie where he plucks a piece of his hair out, a, a strand of hair out, and uses spit to put it up against the door jam to see if anybody's come into the door. But when, they find, when he finds out that she's betrayed him, and she, he essentially locks her in a series of bathrooms, I was just like, this is, this is so great. This is so great that he doesn't know what to do that he knows that he's fucked because he has made this mistake as well. And that even though they can call in this cleanup crew from who are also doubling as a flight crew for a, a, a commercial airline, which is so awesome that he is like actually also having a crisis. And even in that case, you can't tell if his crisis is a put on because he's trying to coax her into meeting him halfway and then giving something up in the process. So the whole thing is just amazing. This show is so expert at the style and the genre that it doesn't need to do the extra layer that spy shows often have to do, which is, you know, to really, really shine a light on the fact that all of us are performing versions of ourselves and our relationships with others who are performing versions of themselves are just an agreed upon partnership for that will last a temporary amount of time and it might not really be who you are and the stakes and the the mind reading and antenna that have to go out to monitor how the other person is behaving in relation to you. All of that's present. All of that's here. But it's not metaphor. It's just literally they are spies who are working each other. And the stakes for each individually are enormous. And as you pointed out, ultimately, Marina wins because Mm -hmm. she accomplishes something that is of value to the French. What she accomplishes is of of value to everyone. But the French now are aware of this program. They're aware of what the Israelis are doing. They're aware of a certain aspect of what's being done to penetrate Iranian security. And Oran or Oran is done. Yeah. This is a catastrophic level failure. And where that plot line ends up may be my favorite sequence of the series to date with her, um, you know, running back and forth. Being like, Why have you put me in the bathroom? It is very rude. <laughs> we do not do this. I need to call my mom. Yeah. My mom, my tum tum yeah. is sore. Yeah. And then, and then with that arrival of that, like terrifyingly smiley flight crew who yeah. are just going to go full saw sequel on her or whomever once they get there the stakes of that the decisions that have to be made are we clear to burn her is this all going to work out fascinating um i am of two minds to your point about marina and, and this speaks a little bit to what she gets up to in season four too i really like and admire one of the show's central conceits which is that this work is 
incredibly exacting, incredibly exhausting, incredibly hard, and for such small portions, right? And I, I, I think that it, in that sense, I really admire it. It's very different from we keep using the show as its as its counterpart in Punching Bag, which is not entirely fair. But on Homeland, like a Carrie Matheson is going to save the world one way or another at the end of the season and then be back to do it again. The shelf life for these agents is punishingly small. Yeah. And the reward is potentially even even smaller. And yet it's worth doing for who Well, it's you know, worth doing for a reason that we see because the other sort of you know, there's there's what Nadia does in uh in her travels across sort of you know in into the Middle East and working in Paris under the guidance of Marie Jean to try and uh, facilitate Paul's release. But then there is, or Guillaume's release, but then there's also this other plot line about Raymond recruiting a Kurdish woman who's a, a, a freedom fighter in Syria to work for the DGSE. And, you know, what that winds up leading them to and in a roundabout way it kind of facilitates the recruitment of this guy, Cochise, who was a former... French intelligence source in the 80s when he was an Iraq Iraqi officer and now he is in the upper echelon of ISIS and sort of like the executive committee of ISIS and these things are all connected but you talk about what happens to this Israeli agent in the hotel room and what Marina is or isn't doing but in fact Cochise's storyline is why they're doing it because you never yep. know when 30 years later this person you talk to in some other capacity when he was an Iraqi military officer winds up being the reason you get to bring home your agent and gives you incredible insight into the inner workings of ISIS and eventually leads Jonas to the IOD network, I assume in season four, because the implication is Jonas debriefs coaches at the end of season three. And then season four is this miracle turn from Jonas. I, I think it's worth noting that this is also an example of something that I think confounds our American sensibilities, which is I said it before about that cowboy myth, right? One person is the hero that's going to do it all. It might not, maybe might not be American either. I mean, Brits have James Bond, right? Like there's there's the hero that solves everything, and there's the ego involved in that. Part of working on this level of intelligence and working for this bureau in particular requires a deep sublimation of your own value, life, even at times, as we see with Duflo, and certainly ego for the larger cause mm-hmm. you know in, in 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 season four guillaume rec- not recklessly quite intentionally burns marina on the altar of a bigger yeah and with the blessing of his government in a lot of ways because it's a no-fail mission exactly and that's the stakes here one little crumb is will lead to the large loaf of bread is that a french analogy <laughs> that will work but the show demonstrates that expertly um and it can be quite crushing and heartbreaking as you realize that. And you mentioned the Ezrin storyline, phenomenal storyline, great work for Raymond. Also, the show's attention to the role of the Kurds and Kurdish fighters. Again, I am, I, I, you know, I, I, these are not things that I pay enough attention to. Even just their representation here and the, the way that the show humanizes the hopelessness of their perpetual situation caught between everything mm-hmm. uh, and how easily they themselves are burned as, as what happens with Ezra and where, you know, there is a version of the show that I think anyone watching it week to week or binge to binge will feel in their bones where she should get justice. She's special. 
Mm-hmm. She should get to be in Paris or Istanbul or wherever she wants to live with her son. She's done enough. She's earned it. But that's not the world she lives in, and that's not the world any of these she's, countries operate in. she's too in. pure. But her, her actual motivations are the purest other than, I mean, you could almost argue that Guillaume's motivations are pure because it's crazy love. But what he does to sort of achieve that love is, or at least to protect it, is so diabolical in some cases, like especially with the Marina stuff in season four. Ezrin wants a nation, wants to protect her son. That's it. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. then br- briefly falls for Raymond. But other than that is... Who doesn't want to smooch uh, Raymond? She has these very clear ideas. You, you, we've discussed this, right, last her. week, that the, the alt title for the show is Everybody Loves Raymond. Like, that's... <laughs> but yeah. when you compare Ezrin to Nadia and what happens to Nadia in season three and how Nadia is now the one running Nadim and Nadia is the one who is an agent in the field. And Nadia is the one who's sort of compromising some of her ideals for some of her personal goals, but also some of her personal goals for some of her political goals and using her standing with the DGSC to vault up the chain of the UN sort of planning commission of what, what the future of Syria is going to look like. She's, she's now a player, you know, Ezrin's not a player. Ezrin is a soldier and has very straightforward desires. And I think that it's straightforward desires that get you killed in this world. Yes. I think that the development of Nadia this season is really well done. I think a lesser show would have abandoned her. Um, But seeing her change and evolve and develop and harden in a lot of ways is fascinating. It also allows us access to the second in my, my favorite series of supporting characters on the show, which is leather beaten misogynists wearing neck scarves in the desert. Shanana, um, yeah. Sh- Shahana. Wh- wh- just what a legendary look. What an icon for all these guys. Like it, it, It's kind of nice to know, Chris, that as we age, there are still options left for us. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. just in terms of what sort of... Just start wearing um, lots of rings. Yeah, well, exactly. Get, it, get a into lot of, Mesopotamian art. Yeah. A lot of khakis. Yeah, Sumerian a lot stuff. Of, yeah. A lot of rings. Wrap a lot of wildly colored stuff around our necks and heads. And just kind of, you know, uh, live life, um, you know, tiny, strong coffee to tiny, strong coffee. That's right. Um, it always works out for us. Anything on else? On th- I guess we should discuss the death of Henri before we move on to season four. Because I think that's you. obviously the gut punch of season three. In a lot of ways, it's the, the climax of season three, even though there's several episodes that come afterwards. You know, remind me not to have a flesh wound. Uh, in Istanbul, I guess is is the in terms of in terms of ambulatory or ambulance pr- transportation, but Henri's decision to go back in the field is categorically stupid. He's he's an older man who is nearing retirement. There is de- a degree of self sacrifice to this whole. Also, by the way, the cleaner of your office has looked at your face and told you you have the shroud of death on you. You yes. know what I mean? Like, yes, I would. I would give that some credence, but please go on. Well, you know, and we're talking about the politics and the personal. It's the question about whether or not Henri is letting the politics of his office and the sort of assumed, uh, you know, his his sort of black mark on his career that is this Malatru uh, ordeal drive him to these extremes to maybe bring him home, but also to correct the record, you know, to sort of to leave on a high note rather than be like, ah, I ran it as best as I could. And then it wound up that we had this guy betray us to the CIA and get captured by ISIS. 
I mean, there's there's two layers of character here. And, I, and we said it last time we talked about the show. I'll say it again. Henri Duflo is one of my favorite characters of modern TV. I just, it was so gutting to lose him. I love watching him. I loved everything about him. Two layers to this character on screen. There's there's the person who is just unambiguously kind and is basically a father to everyone, including to Marina and getting her back in the field and getting her back on her feet. And the guy who wears the funny ties in a world that uh, does not welcome anything like that. Yeah. Um, unless you are, as we've noted previously, a um, shady Middle Eastern art dealer. The other layer of Duflo that we're, that we're given access to is the one who says and believes deep in his bones that he will be forced out in disgrace, that there is only one way for this career to end. And he's somehow been on borrowed time for the majority of it because at a certain point, the name on the piece of paper is going to be yours. And it actually was in season two, I believe, but it was a test yeah. from Mag. C'est un test. They say that a lot. The other piece of Duflo that I think we should discuss that I think some people also might be still wondering about is the suicide pill. He, off the books, requests from Sylvain. By the way, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Sylvain. We will more in season four, but like how many Hall of Fame characters can you cram into the fourth line of cast on a single series. It's incredible. So he says that if he's going back in the field, he wants something old fashioned, which is basically a suicide pill. Um, I it's, think it's not cyanide, but it, it essentially will, will work the same way. Yeah. Right. So he has it sort of as protection, but also to avoid disgrace, which is the thing that defines him. He does not die in disgrace, but he is ambushed, um, is shot even while, while hiding after the first interaction. And, with and one of the best sequences of the entire series is this whole meeting by the river. Oh in, my God, it's and, gut-wrenching. And, you know, Ezrin and her cousins are sort of Henri's bodyguards and Raymond is running this this op. And then on the other side, Cochise is trying to elude some suspicious ISIS officers who think that he's he's maybe doubled. It's, it's worth saying again that it is very rare for a show to be able to do... Um, kind of deep character work that it does so well and then also every so often pull off an action or suspense set piece the way that it does well, it, also, almost flawlessly they they i don't yeah i would love to ask eric Rashawn about this but in terms of the technology used so this is 2017 18 whatever it is season mm-hmm. three this 10 minute delay they have on tracking people where they in france can see 10 minutes late that mm-hmm. two other people have left the riverbank in a boat and are approaching where Henri and Cochise are meeting. So they're getting their intel way too late to be truly helpful to Henri and Cochise. But they know if somebody's going to come, it's just like you're basically putting the DGSE in the place of the audience who can't do anything to help the characters that they love. Exactly. And in another way that the show makes a storytelling choice that works really well for the characters, but also for the audience, is that it delays his demise. He mm-hmm. survives this, allowing us to spend a little more time with him, allowing him face to have times. these FaceTime, some Zooms, some goodbyes yeah. before succumbing surprisingly to his injuries in, in the ambulance. I have seen some speculation, and I and again, we this may come up in season five. I would be surprised if it did, that he actually took the pill. That that is that that is why he died. Oh, like in the head suddenly or, or something. I see. Well, that's why he died in the ambulance, but I don't well, know, I know, but like, I don't know why, why he would. Why would he take the pill when he was in I, the hospital? Maybe there's another shoe to drop. I don't believe that there is. I also feel definitively that he did not take the suicide pill because it, had he done it, 
he would have woken up uh, in the middle of the Arctic Sea with Martin Donovan explaining to him that the future is at war with the past. Um, <laughs> Just and it's say time tenet, to start baby. sucking bullets into your gun. So that's, I don't think that's the case. Uh, horrific loss of character. I, but, I, 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 need know, to, if, I need to say something. Yeah, yeah, please. If I ever die... Mm. And well, I don't see it happening. You are in the ambulance with me when it happens. Yeah. Just, just go ahead and tell my friends and family. Just, just be sure? straightforward. Like when the phone call comes and they're right. like, is Chris okay? Just be like, I'm afraid not. Don't be like, uh, he can't come to the phone right now. He's busy. Yeah. Uh, that he's, was he's the, tired. I he's mean, sleepy. It, I, I think I loved that moment with Raymond because Raymond is actually, you know, he goes from kind of like being this pastry eating gadfly around the office to getting his foot chopped off and then becoming a you know super handler like an amazing agent throughout the the series even though he is often sort of deployed very much because of his weaknesses you know the, his ability to seduce we'll certain to that, people yeah. or his ability to be kind of vulnerable to certain people is why people send him into the field but his being overwhelmed by the enormity of what's happening with Henri passing away and when Marie-Jean and everybody's just like put him on the phone we want to bust his balls and Raymond's just like yeah he can't come to the phone right now he's like what's he doing doing Stuco or something like I, I loved that moment even if it seems a little bit inexplicable at, at the time uh, I was really really emotionally affected by it. it it's just it's just devastating not just because we love the character but in a world where everything is unstable the fact that these these characters who have you know again, to the larger world, have perfectly bourgeois, middle-class Parisian lives. They have no stability in them. There is no floor to what's possible and what could happen to them. And for many years, for many of them, it was Duflo. And now that's gone too, which is destabilizing for them personally. It is destabilizing for the series. And this is, to me, often the mark of a really elite-level showrunner, which is where you are able to maximize the emotional extraction from a moment, and then you immediately pivot and turn a deficit into an advantage. So what does it mean for Duflo to be gone? Well, first of all, what does that mean to Guillaume, who you know sees in Duflo on some level an antagonist, but also an antagonist who gets it, who he can speak to, right. who understands. And you know, there's, it, there's few things more heartbreaking than when he's like, why didn't you come? And when he starts calling him on a cell phone in season four, he doesn't, he doesn't know. It's powerful. I, you're talking so much about Raymond. I, I am picturing him in those great crisis room scenes where he's got Celine on one side and Ezra on the other side, and he's in the middle, being like, "What do you want from me?" It's it's, it's the painting in Goodfellas, right? Like he's, he's 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 just caught in the middle of it. It's it's pretty great stuff. Um, um, we should say before we get into season four, season three also contains something that I think most viewers of the show would not clock as the monumental moment that it is, but the introduction of 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 Jonas the overweight lover MC of the show enters yes. the show by commenting on bathroom etiquette and exits season four, having single handedly 24 a catastrophic terrorist attack in the heart of France. It is such a choice and it's ultimately such a good and rewarding one, but it is a, it is a surprising one. Yeah. I mean the, the, the emergence of somebody who is basically like mildly comic relief and the, the actor who plays Jonas is this guy, Artus, who's like a, a, a also a humorist in France. And I think he's sort of like, I guess a comedian to some extent. And 
everyone in, in France is to an extent a humorist, though. I mean, it's it's the cafe culture. He kind of comes in on this lighter note and then obviously plays a much bigger role in season four, which we'll get to right now. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven. And your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So Andy, uh, season three ends with possibly the most sort of like traditional kind of like old school, almost Hitchcockian, almost just like romantic, you know, these two lovers who have been star-crossed and kept apart and we think we're going to finally get this reunion between the two of them but the various governments get in the way of 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 guillaume and nadia reuniting and and guillaume absconds uh and they crack the code which is so good about how she answers the questions and then it kind of sets up season four so i guess you know what what were we gonna say no just with, with two things the the Guillaume jumping over the side of a boat. Do you think he brought a little bit of uh, Zangief's Go Fast juice? Oh, the FSG juice? Last, just for well, that last swim? That, it does bring up an interesting question that I wanted to ask you because I, I think that there are certain things in the show that even if I don't completely understand, I just kind of let wash over me because I'm so sure. blown away by everything else. 
But I am a little confused about why Balmez, Dr. Balmez, who is a... Yes. Introduced as the sort of office therapist in the DGSE, but then we learn is uh, a double agent for the CIA who has been working for the CIA since her husband died in 9-11. Dr. Balmez is kind of like cool and good to go and is allowed sort of to pop back up at various like DGSE functions and serve yes. even. Uh, and Guillaume is like, you're fucking, you're dead to us and you're on the run. Like why, why is Balmez, if Balmez is the one who essentially like kind of helped seal the deal with Guillaume at the end of, mm-hmm. of one and in two, she's like the person that they're like, yeah, definitely go send her to talk to him on the boat back from ISIS. The continuing, her continuing involvement is a little odd to me. It's also not totally clear. I think she refers to having been stashed, like basically. Yeah, she was in living in like two, a, a safe house. Yeah. In season two, she's uh, still running her practice, right? In season yes. two is when she's meeting with Guillaume and 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 that's, that's when Henri bugs her. plants the bug. Yeah. Then they snatch her up, and then she's living. She's like neighbors with Nadim, and they share sugar, and that's about it. But um, by the way. Chris, you've you've made a beautiful request to me about how I'm to call your wife and mother and 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 I guess the rest of the Ringer editorial team should you expire in the back of an ambulance in the <laughs> Middle East. I would like to say to you that if there's ever a situation that you have knowledge of where I need to be uh, protected or I've betrayed something and I need to be given safe harbor or at least taken away from society, please let it be in a French country house. Right. Like I, all these people get put in the places that characters in E.M. Forster novels would murder to live in. And they're like, let me out of here. I don't get that. You know, when Nadia's like, I, I must I must return to my life. I'm like, really? Really? You could just be roasting potatoes in a copper pan for another two months. Well, it doesn't sound like they give a lot of a heads up when they need the safe house back. You know what I mean? That's they're also just true. like, get the fuck out. We need this like cool house back. My thing would be, and maybe this is a little like Gen Z of me, but like if I was getting hired by the DJSC, I'd be like, well, what more can you offer me? Like yeah. I get the pay package is cool. Clearly to work here means that though my job is to be a clinical or technical secretary regarding the specifics of the, you know, the, 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 the transportation system in Damascus, I could also be called into the field at literally any time, even yeah. over catching a stray comment at lunch. But I would say like, what do you have in the world of safe houses and how avail are they to early employees on the weekends? Like, right. I want to live there. I can't do, say this enough. Do you enough. need an aspiring showrunner to turn against his government? Yeah, fine. <laughs> yeah. That's, I'm, I'm okay. So the Balmas thing is interesting. I think for me, and, and I apologize, people who have watched season three more recently will probably have the specific answer. For me, having watched season four already a week or two ago, like I, I'm a little bit lost in the sauce of it. I do think that the presence of certain characters in certain moments is like a a, a semaphore it's mm-hmm. a you know it's, it's it's a signal flare of what's going on and what it means yeah just as and what this is what's so delicious about the show is that like it becomes an issue in season four where raymond is like was i sent because i'm a softy yeah uh the answer is both yes and no and it's yes and no on both sides guillaume always has multiple strategies he did not want to go back to France. He wanted to escape. That was in his head. When he saw that it was Raymond and he saw that it was Dr. Balmas, he's like, this can work. 
This can work. A. I, my body is broken from spending all this time with Desh, and I'm going to jump off a boat. <laughs> Chris, I feel like you're selling yourself short. Uh, there were nights in the East Village where you were at least in as bad a shape as Guillaume was after his six months it's of true. being. And yet, you still kept going, and we all did. You know, the, the human body is an incredibly resourceful thing. Um, the end, at least for now, of the Guillaume, Paul, Nadia relationship is phenomenal television. It's also very affecting emotionally, and it's also true. Because once again, these people who have affirmed somehow through all these scrims of government and politics and espionage have affirmed their love for each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is clear from their behavior and their reckless choices. But it is also, it's a crazy love. It is an impossible love because it does not exist in a vacuum. It is absolutely a, a, a prisoner of the larger circumstances. And so they both have to turn away from it. It's also an amazing decision for a television show because you end what I think a lot of people would argue is like, well, this is the central driving force of this show mm -hmm. is like their love for each other is why all these things are happening. And Nadia does not show up in season four. And in a lot of ways, well, briefly, but, but generally yeah, no, but for the most part, Nadia is not like an action. She does not Correct. create anything in season four. And then, what you get in season four is the first time where I think for me, even though he had gone through these terrible experiences with ISIS mm -hmm. and maybe because of that, Guillaume very quickly into his time in Moscow, as he is very publicly trying to be seen by various intelligence agencies, he's not hiding himself. And I think what he's basically doing is putting himself up for auction. And he's like, mm -hmm. who wants me? What's the best deal I can get? And can we make sure that X, Y, and Z of, of like are taken care of? And then you get me, whatever the reservoir of information I have is, whatever my skill set is. And maybe that's going to be being brought home by the French. Maybe that's going to be um, becoming an FSB agent. Maybe that would involve the Americans in some capacity. But he's working... <laughs> There is there is a a uh, inference to be made here about how welcome American tourists are in generally in the world because to your point he's just like I can work with these guys I could work with my own people but anytime American tourists come and in fairness the American tourists are there to violently erase him from existence right uh, they are not welcome they're not right. welcome friends and so he uh, gets a job in a food truck meets a lovely name lady named Samara who runs a grocery store in Moscow. And promptly uh, gets put in a Russian prison on false charges of pedophilia, which mm. honestly like, looks like it might break even worse for him than being uh, imprisoned by ISIS until uh, he gets into a sort of uh, dialogue with one of my favorite characters that the show has, has given us so far, and it's the FSB agent Karlov. And Karlov is played by a Ukrainian actor named Alexei uh, Gorbanov. Who, and it's filmed in, I believe they filmed all this in the Ukraine. And it's you, not called the Ukraine, I'm sorry, in Ukraine. And if you look through uh, Alexei's, you know, his uh, IMDB, he plays a lot of generals, a lot of colonels, but is one of three people who show up in season four. And for me, these three characters essentially became what the show was about, which is so incredible to be in season four. And for me, season four was a show about Jonas, JJA, yep. And in some yep. ways, Karlov, you know, yep. I mean, all these other people were still in it. Marina's still in it. Marie-Jean's still in it. Guillaume's still in it. But I was so deeply involved with those three major characters. And 
this is the time when I'm watching season four, I start to feel like an ache because I know the show is going to end in season five. Yes. And I mean, again, talk about just making choices. Season four begins. And, you know, we talked about Mad Men earlier. Mad Men was famous for being very, very considerate of its opening image in terms of what the season was going to be and what it was going to be about. The season begins with Jonas on a dune like uh, like Lawrence of Arabia just thinking about stuff before getting back into it with his new uh, gun running buddy who protects him. And it's a it's a different show. This guy's mm-hmm. suddenly in the field and we're starting with him. It's pretty wild. I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did want to ask before we get into to JJ and um, and I want to talk about Caesar too, another four, season four character yeah. who I adore. Chris, because, you know, maybe this is, again, this is American of us, but we like to consider our own options in certain situations. Should you find yourself at the end of your professional rope and in Moscow, do you feel confident in your secondary skill set to be able to make a living? Because it is wild to me that Guillaume is just like, yes, part of my training is not only how to hold up under torture, it's also making a killer salad niçoise. Are we sure he can make anything but a niçoise salad, though? Great question. And are we sure that, no offense to our Russian listeners, but like, is the Russian street cart habitué palate so advanced that they're like, this? is there a frame of reference for his salad niçoise? You I know mean, what I mean? Honestly, I have to ask, have you ever gone to a food truck for a salad? Uh, answering a question with a question <laughs> usually doesn't work for me, but you're blowing my mind right now. You're blowing my mind right now. It's so, almost as if that was a code, like that yeah, she was an agent too, because only someone with something to hide would order a salad from a random food truck. I love this season so much. Uh, the you know uh, We talked in the first episode that we did about some of the framing devices that the first two seasons use. The third season, or the fourth season rather, has this framing device of Guillaume calling a ghost phone. Henri's phone number that he gives Guillaume, we learn he gives it to him on the day he's about to go off into the field. And he's like, call this number, leave a message. It's my phone, it's It's my number, it's direct to me. This phone, ever since Henri's demise, has been in sort of a storage locker somewhere, but it's still taking a charge, it's still taking calls. And eventually, after a very long time, Marie Jean comes across this phone and hears all these messages in one of the most breathtaking scenes of her just like sitting in this evidence lock room and listening to all these messages that Guillaume's been leaving. And, you know, essentially this is a, a season where kind of like the... You start to really think about like the work that these people are doing, these characters are doing, because I found that the Jonas thing was extraordinary. His... Mm-hmm pursuit of the IOD network across the Middle East in an effort to stop uh, a possible attack on on French soil by French nationals is breathtaking. It's happening pretty much outside of the other story. And this is the first time where this show kind of just does an A plot and a B plot. And the B plot is not exactly related to the A plot. I mean, Jonas knows about the IOD network from Cochise, who is only caught because of Malachi. It's all connected on it's some level. It's all connected. Level, yeah. But I think you're waiting and waiting and waiting for something that Jonas finds to help with the, you know, whether it's you want to call it the capturing or the rescuing of, of Malatru. And then you realize at the very end of the season is how the work just goes on. Mm-hmm. And in in some other office, in some other subway car, in some other restaurant, in some other place, 
something as significant as what's happening with Guillaume is also happening by this sort of kind of, you know, melancholy office drone who then becomes essentially a super agent on his own. Yeah, and there's something also very noble and 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 beautiful about the show's commitment to highlighting that. That in addition to the dramatic, romantic, egotistical, uh, operatic machinations of Guillaume and then JJR, who are you know who are operating on this grand Wagnerian scale of emotion, the work goes on, and the work includes many many people who are very good at certain things that other people will probably never know about. And whether it's the woman who, you know, I was joking before when I referred to it, that he recruits at lunch and is just like, ever been in the field, to his buddy who develops this kind of almost beautiful grudging respect for Jonas over the course of the season, to the guy at the very end who's talking and typing in real time to the other terrorists in the network trying to get them to showcase themselves. Um, A lot of people are working very hard in pursuit of something beneath the surface and the show's commitment to illustrating that makes for great tv great drama great suspense but also really helps contextualize all of it you know that the show is big enough and seaworthy enough to contain a lot of different types of stories the emotional storytelling that we love um in prestige tv but also the dramatic and suspenseful and you know, earth-shaking kind of stuff that we might even get from a documentary, honestly, at, done after the fact. It's 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 pretty remarkable, and all the little character choices that it, it, that that Jonas gains over the course of the season. You know, his um, anxieties and his quirks—they're real. I mean, it's not an act, and yet because he is so well trained now, he knows to use the truth of himself the way the yeah. agents are taught. Yeah to get what you need. Yeah. And it's, well, it's, it's, it's a series to, of set pieces that to are... To contrast him with, with Raymond, who I think sees himself strangely in the advent, uh, in the aftermath of Raymond's injury, he kind of becomes this, you know, rakish kind of like lover, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the world, but then has this crisis of confidence when it appears that Marie-Jean might have used his affability or his likability against him by sending him to go see Malatru, Jonas is constantly like, I'm hypoglycemic. I'm, I'm sweaty. I hate, this is hard. I don't, I don't run fast and all these things, but he is using those things actually to oftentimes like, like knock his interview subjects off their square and and no more Mm -hmm. so in the moment where he seemingly stupidly puts this pen in front of, um, an, an ISIS agent that he's talking to. Who's, I was pretending to be a nobody. He's like, he's, oh, he's I'm basically just, Kaiser Sozaying. Yeah. He's like, I'm, I'm, I don't even know. Like, I'm just this guy's cousin. So Jonas like puts his pen down in front of him and then like exactly like kind of measures out where he needs to be so that this guy, because he's got his feet, uh, you know, chained to the floor, can't quite cut Jonas with the pen. And Jonas's whole partnership with this master blaster guy, like he's, He's to- paired up with this Call of Duty dude who's following him all around the Middle East, helping him try and find the IOD agents. Is just mind blowing because the 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 respect that this guy winds up developing for Jonas because Jonas is one of the bravest characters in this series. It's kind of interesting the way everybody wants to control everything in the show and in this world, right? You want to have the intelligence, you want to be ten steps ahead, but in order to succeed, you have to be equally comfortable with total submission. 
and the knowledge that your flaws are part of you and are part of the great game, right? And the thing about Jonas that he learned that he learns over the course of the season and culminates in that absolutely breathtaking finale to the plot line, where his buddy, who we're talking about, likes him, admires him, uh, but also knows how to use him to get what they all want. And he doesn't tell him that he's about to be the wriggling bait fish on the hook yeah. to bring the bomber out into public. And then he's about to get hit with some temporarily paralyzing nerve gas in order to do it. That scene is wild. Chris, friendship check. Would you be cool with me doing that to you? Uh, it, w- it would be tough. I think I would be more mad at you if you if you did what Guillaume did to Marina, where you're just like straight up like, <laughs> yo, this is the spy. You burnt? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the Jonas, the, the Jonas plot line is absolutely remarkable. Let's talk about JJ Let's talk about JJ Ott. So introduced into this season is uh this avenging angel of of this the French spy service, who is Jean-Jacques, who goes by the nickname JJA, which is uh stands for James Jesus Angleton, who is a American spy master who is obsessed with rooting out moles within the the CIA. Perhaps the most um, famous paranoiac in exactly. American government history. Died in you know in a very like was not happy going out the way you know he basically was like died being like kind of like pretty crazy. JJA is this very um, efficient um, clockwork like guy who is prone to incredibly long monologues. <laughs> and being incredibly clear about what he wants and what he thinks is happening. And he sets his team on the DGSE under Marie Jean to basically do an audit of their security protocols of who's working there. And he is operating from a hypothesis already, which is that this whole entire place needs to go. Everybody here is infected by Malatru and are in some ways in love with or seduced by Malatru. Now, the ironic part about that, of course, is that JJ is the person who trained Malatru. Yep. So what did you think of Matthew Almerick in this show? Well, so a couple things. The first victim of J.J. Uh, is uh, Mag, played mm-hmm. by the great Gilles Cohen, who it, it was almost too much for me to lose Duflo and then almost instantly in the next season lose Mag. The show doesn't mess around. It goes after your sacred cows. It removes the people you want to see in the room. So you are as discomfited ultimately as Marie Jean is. I respect it. I was thrilled we got a little, we get to see him a little bit later knowing he's landed on his feet. But the mag thing I just had to point out because a character who almost seemed like uh, cliched in his first appearances in the first season became someone that I deeply un- felt I understood and loved. And so when I go into the crisis room, I'm like, I know what that guy's going to be about. I know what he's going to be about. I know where I am. And the show continually shakes the bottle so you don't, or the snow globes, so you don't feel comfortable anymore. So a little background here. Matthew Almerick is, um, this is extremely French, but he is like one of, the most important French actors of his generation. He's a legendary actor and performer. He's probably best known to American audiences as being the villain in the worst of the recent Bond movies. Is that fair to say? Is he in Quantum of Solace? Yeah. Is he the bad guy? Yeah. For people who are wanting to do uh, a little bit of research around this or stay in this world, there's a, his breakthrough performance in the 90s was in this film called Ma Vie Sexuelle, My Sex Life or How I Got Into an Argument, which is the it's three hours long. It's the first film by a filmmaker named Arnaud uh, de Plachine. And it's it's so French and it's so 90s. Did but you watch it? If, yes. If you are a fan of the kind of 90s movies, like Chris and I did the rewatchables for Kicking and Screaming. It is kind of the French version of that. Is in it that funny? It is not particularly funny. <laughs> 
but it's a bunch of like grad students being like, did you sleep with her? No, I must dump this other woman. Then I will sleep with her. Great. I slept with her. How interesting. Let's flash back to the time we met at the pool. Um, but they're also talking about um, dialectics. So it's extremely French. I haven't done a good job selling it. It's on the Criterion channel. But what's interesting to watch that movie is that Amarik, as a younger actor, he's 30 when he made that movie, is electric. Yeah. Right? You see it. You may not realize it when you see him in this show because he's he's very composed and it's, you know, that's intentional. But I would describe his performance uh, or his appearance in French cinema at the beginning of his career as Tom York who fucks. And it's cool. <laughs> and so to, it's hard to it's hard to kind of, for uh, a non-French audience, communicate what a big deal this is, that in the fourth season of a show, like the leading film actor is like, okay, yeah, cool. Because he's a fan. He knows Rochant probably from the film world. I do think, again, I don't actually know this from lived experience, but there's an element of the French show Call My Agent that's true and that imagine a film industry or a country where it's so small that like, the main city is both New York, Washington, and Los Angeles, and sure. all the industries are there. So I don't think it was that challenging for him to go to work and wear a nice suit. And also, you have to remember that his arrival, it's mirroring what it's like to have an actor like that on set, to be like, come join us in an exalted position. Here's two-page monologues for all of your scenes, and you just kick everyone's ass. And from what I've heard, this is the only spoiler that I received, I think is what I understand his character gets even more interesting in season five because he is a uh, fanatical wrecking ball in the season. Sure. To the point where you can sort of just appreciate what he's doing almost more than relating to the character. That said, we should talk about his coming out party, which is when he invites Marie Jean to his office for a glass of gin that she doesn't drink. Yes. That basically turns into is there a is there a comparison to like worst worst work meeting ever no i like, mean i think that like it just speaks to france's somewhat looser hr rules where <laughs> it's just like this guy is like you should quit and then goes on a nine minute like rant about like why she should just basically like flush herself down a toilet because of like the disgusting office that she oversees She's that is polluted completely everything. corrupted and he's just like I want all of you gone I want you guys all gone and that this is essentially like you don't have to wonder what my motivation is here I'm telling you it's I, an, I was just a, reading a volcanic performance I don't mean to make light of a real situation the details of which I know nothing about but I, it did cross the transom that the longtime host of the very genteel WNYC show uh, on the media Bob Garfield has been removed from his position and the, the named reason for him being uh, let go is that he yelled at someone twice. And so I just feel like the culture at NPR and the culture at the highest echelons of the French government do not align at this moment. Yeah, probably. Judging not. by what I can see here. The other good thing about, I mean, JJ being there is awesome because now the antagonist is inside the house. That said, the show is smartly uses his presence as a way to reframe Mary Jean throughout the course of this season. Uh, we haven't given her enough due. Her performance in many ways is the slowest burn across the seasons. But I really noticed and really loved the way her framing changed once she was in the hot seat. It's not just how deeply empathetic the camera is to her and her, I mean, she holds it together in the face of that uh, barrage from JJ, which is, unbelievable. But now every time she enters a room, it's very clear just in terms of the emotional storytelling and the visual storytelling that she's at a huge disadvantage, that she is on her back foot, 
But also, she's the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And more than once, she walks into the crisis suite, and those four old-ass dudes turn. Yep. And, you know, that's society. On every, in any country, in any level, the show hasn't shied away from being aware of that before, but it's felt more deeply due to our long-term investment in Marie-Jean and her competence and her strength. Yeah, we've remarked upon her hair. We've remarked upon like, how they change her look over the course of a couple of years. You know, They do that same thing with Raymond, who I think starts out with these sort of like turquoise V-neck sweaters with crumbs all over them. And then like by the end is like leather jacket guy. Marie-Jean, <laughs> in the same way, starts out with like kind of like fun fun skirt you know with a cool print and then like by the end of season four is wearing like all black pantsuits and is just like the grim reaper moving through the office because she's just really learned that this is what you have to be to be the boss of this group of people a couple more things i want to talk about with season four i just um, Mar- less marie jean point second best pun season one or two uh duflo gives guillaume a mole skin notebook because there's <laughs> a right. mole in this season uh Guillaume steps out of the grocery store and is offered some Mary Jane to smoke. That's right. Some That's right. Mary Jane. Loved it. Uh, the best scene of season four to me is the um, the double speakerphone conversation between Karlov and Guillaume in Moscow cool. who are calling to recruit Sylvain, quote unquote, because Sylvain winds up being Caesar. And Marie-Jean is on the other end of that phone call with, with Sylvain, both on speakerphone. And the hand gestures that Karlov mm-hmm. and Rijan are giving the other characters in the in the on the phone call to be like, hold on, now give them a little bit more, wait a second, hang up, and then when they call back, it means mm-hmm. they really want it. Just an amazing sort of microcosm of espionage work and just one little phone call, and also performance because everybody is in that in that you know it's one guy who's going to be another guy when he shows up in moscow mm-hmm. um marie jean who is sort of still sort of kind of holding out hope that she can bring malatru back guillaume who is pretending to be a a double agent but is not actually going to work for the fsb it's just a miracle i i guess we should sort of i mean we've been talking for a while i i suppose we should address the big big elephant in the room here and it might be the one thing that you know, you and I record another episode of this podcast and we look back and sort of like, oh, I wish we could have done that differently. But I, I do want to talk about um, probably the most important thing that happens in season four, which is the basketball game inside of the uh, Center 21 Thank all you. night cafe for the hackers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's probably the worst filmed basketball I've ever seen in my life. And <laughs> that's saying a lot. It reminds me more of the early descriptions of the invention of soccer where it would be like one village versus another and they would just kick the head of a burned witch around. You know, it was like, it has way more to do with that than it does basketball. It's essentially like 14 people traveling the entire time and then just like passing a lot and then just being like, oh, I'm so hot and sweaty. Let's get a drink. <laughs> well, let's also, let's lubricate with another vodka soda. It's four in the morning. What yeah, else should we be doing? Why is there a basketball court in this cafe? If I was like there and I'm trying to hack into something, I'm just like, guys, can we with the bouncing? Let's focus. I mean, I, I appreciate your attention to detail on this. You, no one holds people's fictional basketball shoes to the fire. They got to get Andre Kirilenko or Andre Kirilenko's <laughs> wife to show up. Uh, to do or Andre Kirilenko's cousin. Anybody. You know what I mean? Because he's watched a basketball game. So, I, obviously, I, the, the, whole, the whole Russia thing, though, I do want to say, I'm curious where it's going. The Russia part for Guillaume, in terms of his romantic life, in terms of his salad-making life, in terms of Karlov, that's all elite. 
the Marina plotline for me is where the weakness of the season stands out. I think that the highs of season four are as high as everything else. Overall, I would rank it as my lowest season, which is challenging because of the momentum of everything else. It's just hmm, irresistible. But for me, the, the hardest part in the middle of it is the, is the Russian stuff, partly because they do that very cool storytelling gambit where they pull the rug out from it. Like Marina is beginning her journey here. Yeah. And we're only just beginning to get a sense of this weird life and the hackers and the uh, all night cafe and her her budding romantic relationship and what that means for her, especially after everything else that she's gone through. But ultimately, it's a red herring, right? I mean, ultimately, it's a dead end in the service of the larger points, which in and of itself is interesting. Yeah. But the time spent there, I am never entirely sure what they're doing. I think the show does the best version of it and maybe the only good version of it outside of Mr. Robot, which is showing skinny people typing in laptops and making it interesting. <laughs> the moment where Marie Jean is watching them kind of like watch, uh, you know, unhack the hack of the path. Yeah, of but the, I love the that's fact fascinating that... fascinating and cool. I love the fact that like, you know, you essentially are employing a bunch of people to break into various systems and they've broken into their own systems where they're all like, yeah. well, I have a past that shows who's walked in. I have a past that can erase whether or not it's noticed that you've walked into a cafe or not. That That's incredibly cool. And shouts to Law and Order. I mean, it is ripped from the headlines in that Russia is not actually a rich country. It is not powerful in the traditional ways that the Soviet Union was or that France or the US is, is rich. But it, what it does have is this kind of scrappy, furious, nationalized intensity that is happening on laptops and in places like this, as we saw in our own presidential election. So I do love the attention on that. I think ultimately, for me, the weakest point of this plot line, and I hate to say it, was the burden placed on Marina to do an entire season in English. Yes. I know that that plays differently in the show's native France. The actress, Sarah Girardot, who I've come to really, really enjoy and admire and like, and she's doing a hell of a job. I mean, there's so many languages. She had to speak, she had to speak Farsi yeah. rel, you know, throughout the other seasons. But it does, especially with her and her love interest, it's fascinating that they are doing this negotiation with each other uh, in a third language, essentially. But it limits what they can communicate. And we're stuck with them for so long. Uh, ultimately, I, I think that, you could say the same about Karlov. I, like I said, that's one of my favorite yeah, characters. But he is forced to be like, you do not trust me. You know, like, I, I think that like watching him act in the early part of the season when he's just putting his hearing aids in after a day so at good. the shooting range, you're just kind of like, this guy is fucking terrifying. And then when he speaks English, I think it's a little bit more off-putting. But like you said, it might be something that from an American or English language viewer stands out more than like, I'm sure that if if we were on a French television show and we were starting to try to speak French, people would be like, these guys sound like morons. Um, we would. But all this builds to, to your point, it all inter overlaps, intersects brilliantly. Um, Malatru is finally gets, is freed. He's in France, which much like Duflo's departure early in the previous season, he gets to have his scenes with everyone before being put back in danger. There's essentially this three-card Monty being played where there's Marina's character, Marina's sort of, mission to infiltrate the hacker collective on this Russian campus. There is the DGSE sending Sylvain in as a double, sending in Caesar as a double eight to, to sort of make himself available to this firm in Russia as a, as a hacker. And what a great scene when he and Guillaume meet for the first time, having been good friends and have right. to go for a walk and, then they and have download like a, each other. Sort of a psychologist or whoever, like a behavioral expert, like watching them. And then there is Guillaume who is, being recruited by the FSB, still has all this sort of 
uh, baggage attached to him throughout his last couple of seasons with the CIA and with the DGSE. And then also obviously has like friends on the other side who want to rescue him. They do rescue him. And then they immediately put him back into the field. They immediately put him back into the field because honestly, he's the one person that they're willing to sacrifice on this Marina mission uh, to get her to get her back from the Russians and delivered safely across the Ukrainian border. And they can wipe him out and solve their problem. Yes. Um, which is what JJ's plan was. And obviously with the help of the Americans, again, with the Marina thing, that drive back to the border where she confesses everything. I am, I am French government agent. Yeah. I do not have IBS despite my behavior <laughs> for the last hour. Um, that felt muted to me in a way that I, that's my dis- lingering disappointment from the season. You know, her boyfriend's just like, well, we keep going together. He gets arrested. Is that the end of his story? Is that the end of this? Cause he had just agreed to basically betray his country as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so all of that, I mean, maybe it's the larger metaphor that makes it work that everything Marina is sacrificed on the, you know, flaming pyre that is Guillaume's just ego and, and, you know, galaxy brain manipulations. The end is speaking of flaming uh, pyres, <laughs> excruciating, um, inevitable. And yet let's, let's, so all we need to do, Chris, is hit play on Sundance now or AMC plus, however yeah. we watch the bureau. And I would imagine we would know instantly, uh, that Guillaume Debailly somehow still lives mm-hmm. and is has more to his story in the last season, the last 10 episodes of the Bureau. Somehow, neither of us have done this. No. Credit to us. Can't say the same about my wife. Uh, <laughs> secret missions late at night, eight episodes deep. We'll, we'll have to figure this out. It's there for us to know, and we don't know. Soon we will. But I'll say that it is a tribute to the storytelling of the show that it is plausible to me that he's gone, mm-hmm. that he's done. There's a version of that where that's true. And maybe he shows up in flashbacks or whatever, but this show has removed major pieces off the chessboard before. Uh, this feels appropriate, even if it's I'll say infuriating. Um, I thought that the last images, which are essentially, you know, it's ambiguous as to whether or not it's happening or not. I would say mm-hmm. that it is, you know, this moment where he's dining with Prune and Nadia in what looks like the most adorable French restaurant I've ever mm. seen as he comes home from his his desk jockey job is too close to what he says is his dream in life is to just be an anonymous person and go back to having a regular life to be true. So whether or not season five opens with them saving him as like the fumes or as the flames are approaching or uh, whether or not it's a reveal later in season five that he is still around or whether or not season five opens with his funeral. I, I don't know, but you're right no matter what, it feels right. It feels like that's what this guy would be thinking in this moment. That's what he would be dreaming of in this moment. And that in a lot of ways, this is the end of his story. Nadia has kind of moved on. Prune mm-hmm. obviously hasn't moved on, but she's got the mule. She's got somebody to talk to. And, she's got a buddy. Yeah. And Guillaume has done his, he has been punished. And I think that they, he has that conversation, I believe with, um, I believe he says it, I can't remember if he says it to Marie-Jean or to Marina. But it's basically like, have I not paid enough? Like, yep. isn't and, and that is essentially what these last two seasons are about: are him atoning for this sin of betrayal to his nation, his sin of betrayal to Nadia in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it is fitting. I it doesn't feel final to me. No, it just feels like this show. If when they kill people off on this show, it's something like 
what happens to Ezrin when we just see her name on a bulletin board or what it's happens done. to Henri where it's just like he's in that ambulance and he's not going to make it. Having a kind of dreamy sort of reverie is not really how this show has done it in the past, but I'm willing to be surprised. And like you, it, this would be like if Don Draper died in the seat, the last, second to last season of Mad Men and then the last season of Mad Men still had a lot of gas in the tank. I'm I'm really curious where this goes because this obviously, for as much as we like to talk about, you know, it's very French. It's it's you know it's it's walking it's marching to a different uh, uh, beat, the beat of La Marseillaise. I assume this is still going to its last season, a hit show, a sensation in France on on a cable network on Canal Plus. French audiences have been watching American shows. You know what I mean? It's still an influence. And so losing your main character before, potentially before the end of his journey, even if it's not a happy ending, doesn't feel right to me. So I assume that he is coming back, even though I would accept it. That said, I am really curious about how the show resolves that central tension for us in terms of our very American expectations that a story like this has a hero and the hero sees the story through even if, you know, so sees that he's won or something has happened, even if, if he expires at the end. The general sense that I think we we get after four seasons is that this work, this great work that all these people have devoted their life to, the great game, isn't uh, a game with winners and losers. It's a never-ending relay race. And you carry the baton for a while and you move or you move the ball, whatever analogy you would like to use, but then it's your turn to pass it. And you don't actually get to know what the final score is. Um you know, Marina, I can't, I assume she'll be in the fifth season. She can't be in the field anymore. I mean, it's already pushing the limits of credulity that she did. But like, can you imagine her resume if she She's showed up have for an work office somewhere? Where it's like, let me tell you what not to do. She, she, on her resume is a very weird brief time in Iran, followed by a very weird brief time in Azerbaijan, followed by an even briefer, weirder time in Moscow. Like, I, I know that she's a spy. I just hope that maybe, like, maybe she'll be coaching women's basketball when we get back into season five. <laughs> she's um, inspired by the international game. Andy and I are going to do one more of these where we recap the end of the series and we talk, uh, hopefully, with a special guest. We really appreciate you guys um, showing so much interest in the Bureau. It's awesome. It's uh, streaming. It's a Sundance Now original. It's streaming on Sundance Now. You can also get it on AMC Plus bundles. So be sure to check out the Bureau if you haven't already. I don't know why you listen to a two-hour podcast about seasons (laughs) three and four of the show if you haven't watched it, but I'm sure you may have your reasons. Andy, it was great talking to you. A bientôt, mes amis. Salut. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.